Okay, welcome everyone. It's great to have you here. My name is Matt. If you don't know me, I'm one of the leaders here at Liberty Church. Before we get into the message for today, just a couple of things, practical things to add. First of all, just to say that this is our morning service, and we also have an evening service, uh, which meets in a different venue across the other side of the city center at uh, 5.30 every Sunday, and you're very welcome to join us there as well. Uh, if you work shifts and you can't always be here in the morning, or maybe have friends that you think, oh, I'm going to get out of bed at this time, or you miss the morning service for whatever reason, you're always very welcome to join us in the evening as well. And we must make sure we keep remembering to mention that. Um, and if you just want to come and check it out and see how it's going and what things are like, maybe there's some people that you've missed that used to be You'd see here every week and you've not seen for a couple of months, then come along to our evening service and you might find them lurking in a corner there. Also, just to say that obviously we believe that God's favor, God's blessing is always undeserved, unmerited grace towards us. That's what we believe about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, and at the same time, we also believe that when we pray, God moves. That you can see as you read through scripture, as you look at the history of the church over the last 2,000 years, that when God's people seek him in prayer, he moves on his church powerfully. And that's why we as a church pray, because None of this happens because we're really skilled and gifted, but because of God. That if we want to reach this city that God's put us in, then we absolutely must, must pray. We must pray. Um, so that's what this coming week is about. It's a week of prayer. Um, as Jess was saying, something that we can do individually, but something we do together corporately on Wednesday and Friday, so please join us to pray. And you might have come to a prayer meeting before and found it boring or dull or uncomfortable, and I've got news for you. Prayer is hard work. It just is. There are moments when it's glorious and wonderful and brilliant, but most of the time, it's, it's a discipline, it's a labor but that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. So come and join us on Wednesday and Friday to pray. And I guarantee that you will get to somewhere around 6, 7 o'clock on Wednesday evening or Friday evening, and you will think of 100 reasons that you don't want to come and pray. And I will as well. I'll get to Friday evening, and I'll say to Joe, who organized a prayer meeting for a Friday night? Who does that? And then she'll give me one of those half-sympathetic, half you're being an idiot looks, and I remember it was my idea, and I'll come and pray. But there, there are always reasons not to pray, and 99% of those reasons are utter nonsense that you can ignore, and you can tell yourself, that's silly, but it's important to pray, so please gather and join us on Wednesday. We're starting a new series at the start of this new year, start this new decade, on the book of Daniel in the Bible, Daniel is 
A bit like the story of Exodus that we finished last year is a wonderful, brilliant story which will captivate you, and I'm sure you all enjoy it and has lots to speak to us about. I just wanted to recommend a couple of books just before we get into this series. One is called Faith for Exiles, written by David Kinnaman and Mark Matlock, which is particularly about how, as a Christian, you navigate the kind of digital world that we all inhabit, how you process being a Christian on social media, how when you're bombarded all the time with all sorts of different inputs and technological sources telling you all sorts of different things, what does it mean to be a Christian in a world like that? Faith for Exiles, I would recommend that. And another one by Mark Sayers called Disappearing Church, which is a profoundly brilliant, quite short, very easy to read book about what does it mean, or is this one's about more about your individual walk with God? This is about as a church, as a people of God, sent into a culture and a world that often feels very different, and perhaps even against or opposed to what we believe, how can the church flourish and grow in a world like that? So Faith for Exiles and Disappearing Church, Ludo, you can read those, but don't read them now. Okay, we are going to get into the book of Daniel. We're going to read the first seven verses of Daniel chapter 1. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. He brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Asphanes, his chief eunuch, if you don't know what that means, don't look it up now, later, and don't look in Google Images. It says, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshah. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for... The Bible, which is your word to us, which, although written thousands of years ago, is as relevant to us today as it ever has been, is your word, which is alive to us and cuts right into the core of our beings like a sharp sword. And we want to let your word come and do surgery to our hearts and our lives today. Because, Jesus, we want to 
We want to follow you. And we need your word to be a light to guide our path. And we pray that today you would just root this deeply into our souls. Shape us and change us and show us your beautiful gospel, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you know anything about Dutch history or if you've been to the Rijksmuseum, you'll know that 1672 was known as disaster year. Da, da, da when the French, the Germans, and the English all decided to declare war on the Netherlands. Sorry about that. And basically invaded half the country, and that's kind of seen in history as around about the time of the end of what's known as the Golden Age of the Dutch Empire. And over the next hundred or so years, the whole Dutch Empire, like the English Empire would also do, began to crumble away and fade and become somewhat different to what it was. Disaster year. And the story we come to in the book of Daniel, the kind of background of this story, is similar. This is perhaps not the disaster year, but the disaster decade or disaster time for the people of God. Babylon, which was the Babylonian Empire, was the most powerful empire in the world at the time. King Nebuchadnezzar is in charge of the empire. He's perhaps one of the five or six most powerful men that's probably ever lived. And he invades Jerusalem. He invades the people of God. And he defeats them. You can read about the story in 1 Samuel at uh, the end of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 24 in particular, Jerusalem, their capital city, is overthrown. King Nebuchadnezzar appoints uh, Zedekiah, but after three years, he also rebels against the king. So 10 years later, Nebuchadnezzar comes back. And this time, rather than just defeat the city, he sets it on fire. He plunders, he steals everything he possibly can. He ruins the city and the people of God. The temple is destroyed. The Ark of the Covenant is taken and is never seen again. And this is very much the end of their story, it seems. In Psalm 74, it says, they set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name bring it down to the ground. This isn't just an invasion or a defeat, a military attack. This seems like the death of a whole nation, of a whole people. The book of Lamentations is about, a lot of it is about this story. And the book of Lamentations starts like this. It says, how lonely sits the city, it's talking about Jerusalem, that was full of people. She's become like a widow who was once great among the nations. She was a princess among the provinces and has become a forced laborer. She weeps bitterly in the night and her tears are on her cheeks. She has none to comfort her among all her lovers, all her friends, have dealt treacherously with her. 
they've become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile under affliction and under harsh servitude. She dwells among the nations, but she has found no rest. All of her pursuers have overtaken her in the midst of distress. Harsh, bitter, sad words. And this is the backdrop to the story of Daniel, this cataclysmic defeat that's taken place. And of those that aren't killed and butchered and murdered, a few, a remnant, are taken into exile and are taken to, to Babylon. And a few of them, as the book of Daniel tells, are brought into the king's courts, Daniel and some of his friends, to, to serve the king. And obviously this is a, a bit of biblical history, and in the book of Daniel we're going to find some, I guess, stories that you might be familiar with. Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, the writing written on the wall, all these famous stories. But the early church, the people that we read about in the New Testament in the Bible, they read this story, not just a piece of biblical history, but they read it as part of their own story too, that they saw themselves as exiles, sent into a city that was very much opposed to their way of life, sent into a context where they weren't somehow in the, as Jerusalem was, this wonderful center of their religion, but sent into a world where everything was in many ways against them. And that's if you read books like One Peter, it kind of tells that sort of story. Because this idea of Babylon in the Bible what that means is, is, it's not just about a city, although it is a city in this place, but it's about the purposes of man being set against the purposes of God. It's about a human society that glories itself in its own power, in its own prestige, in its own pride, in its own pleasure a culture, a city, a way of life without God because it's self-sufficient in everything it has by itself. So if you go right back to the beginning of the Bible, if you go back to the book of Genesis, you read about the Tower of Babel, the very first city of man built against God, this great tower built to reach up to the sky so they could somehow show themselves to be superior to God. And this idea of Babel, of Babylon, goes all the way through right to the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible. Babylon is, in one sense, a literal place, a city, but it's, it's like an archetype, a, a kind of a picture of collective human pursuits and ideals and dreams and desires and plans and purposes set in opposition, set against God. And in the New Testament, Peter and the other writers they use, they take the city of Rome and they call that this kind of this new Babylon. Again, this whole empire, just like the Babylonian empire, set against the purposes of God. And we today, in our city, in our culture, find ourselves in a world which 
although it might not call itself in direct opposition to God, we often find that what we believe, our way of life, is very different. Sometimes even in opposition to the world against us. We, we love our city. I love Amsterdam. But yet, I find a lot of the time it doesn't agree with me. That often I find I struggle to make sense of what's going on, to know what my place is, to know how am I to be a Christian? How am I supposed to follow what the Bible teaches in a city and a culture that believes so many things which feel against or opposite, contradictory to what I believe? Perhaps a helpful way to understand it is to think of of the church across the whole world as being in different seasons. So in some parts of the world, the church is in springtime, that the church is coming out of a place of darkness into growth, into more and more influence and opportunity. So you can think of places like India and China, where historically there wasn't any church, any Christian witness, but the church is growing in prominence. Some parts of the world you could call it kind of summertime for the church, where the church is, the people of God are thriving, they have influence in society, in culture, in politics, places in some parts of Africa, some parts of South America. Other parts of the world it would be more like autumn. The, the, the church once had its summertime, but now its influence is declining. It's becoming more and more marginalized, like much of the Western world. Or some parts of the world, the church is in winter, perhaps in the Middle East, certain parts of the world where to be a Christian would be dangerous, your life would be at risk, you'd face persecution, isolation from your friends and family. Perhaps even you might need to leave the country where you are because it would just be plain illegal to be a believer. And even in some, some parts of Western Europe, some cities like Amsterdam, it can feel a bit like winter. There are cities, some people call it a kind of a post-Christian city, that once a city full of buildings like this, full of church communities all over the place, but most of the buildings like this in this city are no longer they no longer have Christians meeting them in anymore. Many of them would now be like this place. The, the congregation moved out, closed down at the end of the 1970s. This building was derelict, uh, and then it was restored and is now mostly office space, and this room is hired for events, and we hire it for a few hours on a Sunday morning. But the church has seen this decline over the last several decades in cities like this, and it can feel like winter for us in some respects. And important questions to ask for this year of 2020 is, how can we be Christians, or more importantly, how can we be a church, God's people, in a city like that? And the first thing to say is, it's important that we recognize where we are, recognize where you are which seems like an obvious thing to say, but so often as I'm talking to those here who are followers of Jesus, 
If you're a Christian, often we can forget what season we're in and we can still wear summer clothes when it's actually a bit like winter. Which might seem a pretty obvious thing to say, but uh, in the last century, there was a, a missionary to India called Leslie Newbigin, who lived in India for about 40 years. And then I think in the 1960s or 1970s, he came back to, to England. And what shocked him and what surprised him was what happened to the church in Europe. That they'd lost, they'd lost any sense of who they really were. And they didn't really understand where they were anymore. That they'd just kind of given in to the culture around them. That they just said, oh, well, we'll just believe whatever makes people happy. We'll just believe those things. That they weren't anymore seeking to live by the teachings of Jesus and follow the way of the Bible. They were just doing whatever felt right, whatever seemed permissible to the culture around them. And he came with a, and he was shocked when he returned. That the church just hadn't really woken up to what had happened in the world around them. And so often as Christians, we can live a bit like that. We live an oddly blinkered life where we don't really see what's happening. And that can be dangerous if that happens to us as a, as a church. That often, often people will come to me and say, perhaps people who've just moved here from another country or people who are just tourists who are just visiting and they'll say to me something like, oh, your church reminds me just like my church back in so-and-so place. And they mean it, they're, they're trying to be encouraging. Okay, and I am encouraged. They're trying to say, you know, that we teach from the Bible or that they enjoy our time of worship. They're trying to be encouraging. But at the same time, I'm encouraged yet concerned. Because we're not in, you know, Rio or Belfast, or Sydney, Texas. We're here in, in Amsterdam. So I want us to be a church that is not like churches everywhere else. I want us to be a church that's like the church in the Bible, and a church that's going to reach this city, that seeks to love and serve this city where God has sent us to. Because I want to be careful how I say this, but it's important that we say this, is that we're, we're not an expat church. We're not even in an international church. Now, if you are an expat or if you're an international, you're very welcome. Me too. I'm not Dutch, in case you haven't noticed. But we're a church for Amsterdam, for this city and the surrounding areas where God has sent us to and if you've just arrived here from overseas, I'd encourage you to live like, live like you're going to live here forever, even if you're only going to be here for a few months or a year or two. Love this city. Learn the city. Learn how this city ticks. Learn what people believe, why they believe it. Because so often expats come and they kind of... They just live here as like long-term tourists, basically. And they, they take from the city. 
This city has enough people that come to it just to take things out. As Christians, I believe we should come here and think, what can we give to this city? Not, not how, can, how can I get the most out of this city to you know, keep me happy, but how can we serve this city? How as a church can we be a blessing here to where God has sent us to? So don't live here as an expat or an international, just on the fringes, you know, just taking whatever you need, but live as a local. You might not be Dutch, but you can be an Amsterdamer. As well, we should recognize not just where we are, but recognize who you are. Recognize who you are. Because there's two things to note that happen in this passage. First of all, in verses 4 and 5, there's a, on one hand, a cultural eradication and an indoctrination. What I mean by that is that the Babylonians... They take this remnant of Jews that arrived in their nation and they take the elite Daniel and his friends and they try and erase everything they know about who they are and indoctrinate them with everything that they want them to know about who they are. It's, a, it's like a state re-education, a kind of a forced assimilation into their culture which sounds a bit like what happens in you know, James Bond or spy movies, where they take someone trying to wipe their memory and you think of like electrodes on people's foreheads and things. But that's not actually how it happens in the Bible. It's not actually how it happens in the world around us. And actually what happens is, they, it says here that they teach them the, the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans would have been a way to refer to the Babylonians, but more the, the kind of the teachers, the magicians, those who created thought and ideas in the Babylonian Empire, and they teach them literature, as in they teach them the stories of their culture, which is what happens in our world as well. Because that's how we make sense of the world around us, is we place things into a narrative, a story, to make sense of things. So it happened this week. On, on Friday, I went onto Twitter. You can follow me there if you're on Twitter. <laughs> Just to up my follow account. And, and all, all the, all the, I'd not been aware of what was happening in the news that day, but all the trends were, you know, trending terms on Twitter was, was America, Iran, World War III, and Franz Ferdinand. And I thought, why are we talking about World War III, and why are we talking about an indie rock band from Scotland who around 20 years ago is who Franz Ferdinand were? But Franz Ferdinand also was an archduke, I think, who was shot and killed and triggered the First World War just over 100 years ago. Uh, and at least that's the, the narrative, the story that gets told, is how the First World War was started, was this man was shot and it triggered this war. So people are trying to place what happened on Friday into a narrative. Do you see what I'm saying? So they said, aha, 
this guy who got killed in Iraq, he's like this guy that got killed 100 years ago in Sarajevo, wherever it was, uh, it's going to trigger another world war. People try and take what happens in the world around us and place it in a story to try and make sense of things. That, that's how we understand the world around us. That's how understand, we, we understand our own lives. We try and place what's happening in our life into a, a story to try and make sense of it. Oh, this has happened to me. This is because, and then we diagnose lots of reasons. This is because of X, Y, and Z. We place ourselves into a story, into a narrative, to try and make sense of what's happening in the world around us. And all the time, there are stories that are told of us that are there to shape how we think. So if you think about um, superheroes, the, the stories of, of the kind of the narrative of the typical story behind a superhero movie has changed over the last 20, 30 years. That if you watched the kind of original 1970s Superman, brilliant movie. Well, it was, you know, then. Not so much anymore. But it's, it's a classical story of a, of a hero who saves the day. That's kind of the classical. Or if you watch the original kind of Batman cartoon TV show, you know, the pow, biff, wham, Batman that I watched when I was a kid, which makes me feel really old. But if you watch the Superman movies of more recent years or the Batman movies of today, the narrative is completely different. It's still about a hero, but it's a flawed hero. It shows their vulnerabilities, their failings, their weaknesses, how they've been a victim against evil oppressors and now they've overcome. Because that's one of the popular narratives in our culture, is this idea of victimhood, that there's these evil oppressors and we're all victims and we have to overcome that. It's a story that the world is telling us, rightly or wrongly, all of the time. And all of the times, there are stories that are taught to us that tell us what we should think about sex, about gender, about relationships, about what you should do with your money, of what you should look like, of how you should act. All the time, there are stories that bombard us through movies, through books, through TV shows, through social media that portray stories that we desire to be like, stories that influence, they, they indoctrinate us. It's the same as what happens to Daniel and his, and his friends. And then the next thing that happens is not only are they indoctrinated, but they're given new names. They're given new names, which is a fairly radical thing, but in the culture at the time, it was even more radical because in that culture, your name would have identified yourself with your deity, with your God. So to be renamed was like a completely reworking of your whole belief system, in a sense. So for instance, Daniel, which means God is my judge, becomes Balthazar, which means may a goddess protect the king. It's about a completely different belief system. Azariah, who means Yah or Yahweh is my help, instead becomes Abednego, 
which means servant of Nabu. Nabu was the Babylonian god of wisdom. So rather than Yahweh, the God of the Bible is my help, Nabu, I'm a servant of Nabu instead. Hananiah, which means Yahweh has been gracious. Mishael, who means who is what God is. They become Shadrach and Meshach, which are probably forms of Marduk, who was the chief god of the city. So they were completely renamed and they were kind of put under the allegiance of foreign gods and foreign idols. That's what happens to them. Yet, as we will see as the story goes on, that they remain faithful to God, to what they believe. That's what we'll look at over the coming weeks. They remain faithful. They, despite everything that they were told, well, these new names they were given, this new identity, they knew who they were. Now, that, that's really important. What I'm not saying is, as Christians in a culture like this, we, we hide. We kind of insulate ourselves. We turn off social media. We don't read. We don't watch any movies. Cinema's bad. Don't go there. You know, just hide away. I'm not saying that. We can enjoy everything that's good about the world around us. We don't have to hide away, but it's important that we remember who we are. Remember who you are. Make sure that as well as hearing lots of stories from the world around us, many of them are good, they're not all bad, as well as hearing all those stories, make sure you're feeding yourself on the one true story. Let this book feed you with truth, because we desperately need it. Desperately need to know what's really true. And for the church, there's, there's three options for us in, in a world like this. You can retreat, you can hide away, we can move this church, we can buy a big warehouse in the middle of nowhere. We could build a big house, we could all live in it, we could all wear the same clothes, we could all have the same name. Could become a cult, basically. I don't think that's a very good idea, do you? I mean, I like you guys, but I'm not sure we all want to see each other every day, you know? Definitely don't want to wear the same clothes. Not that there's anything wrong with what you wear, anyway. <laughs> Retreat is one option. Another option is to be, is to be relevant, is, is to see everything that's happening around us and think, well, what we don't want to do is we don't want to offend anybody, you know, we don't want to upset anyone. So the things about what we believe that don't quite fit, we'll just pretend they're not there, we'll ignore them, we'll change what they mean, we'll write them out of our Bibles, we'll just pretend that they're not there. And we'll seek to just become, you know, just a carbon copy of the world around us. We'll seek to be relevant. I don't think that's a very good idea either. Because firstly, what the world believes around us changes all the time. There's no fixed point to it. So what on earth would we believe anyway? It would be constantly in flux, constantly changing. And what would that mean of our Christian faith? If we're actually saying, well, it's subservient, it's, it's kind of just, it, it's, it, it's only good if it, if it copies what everyone else says. That's not faith. <laughs> it's not faith. It's not, what is that? 
There's nothing to believe in. Or there's a third option, which I think is the one, well, not I think, I know is the one for us to pursue, is to be resilient. Is to say, no, we, we're going we're gonna to love this city. We're going to serve this city. We're going to love this people here. We're going to seek to share the good news about Jesus to them. But we want to be resilient, faithful to what we believe. And that's perhaps the hardest road, but I think is the road that Daniel and his friends take in this book, the road that the Bible talks about, the road that many Christians throughout the centuries have seek to, to walk. Finally, recognize why you were here. It says at the start of this book that the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. That there's a, there's a story behind this story. That we could read it just as this cataclysmic, horrible defeat. You know, and then a few people just try and make sense of it all. And actually, it might be difficult for us to hear, but God is behind this story. That he's still sovereign, that he's still in control. We'll unpack that a little bit more as we go on over the coming weeks. But somehow in God's sovereign plan, he brought the people there to Babylon. And in God's sovereign plan, he's brought you here to this city, to this church even. You're not here by accident. It's not just because your job sent you or the university course you wanted to do was here, or maybe you just lived here all your life. All those things are true, but the real reason you're here is because God's put you here with a purpose, with a plan. And I'm so grateful for it. Because when we started this church, and there was just a handful of people in my living room, and we're all sitting around looking at each other thinking, what on earth have we done? <laughs> And we prayed. We prayed that, as it tells us to pray in the Bible, we prayed for laborers. The harvest is plentiful. Pray for the workers. So we did. And God has sent all you guys. He sent you to serve, to love this city. And the provocative thing I want to say to you is perhaps the main kind of vision message of 2020 for Liberty Church is Stay. Stay. You know, some of you might think, well, I'm only, you know, my visa's going to kick me out in a few years, or I've been offered this job somewhere else. And yeah, God, God may move you on, but let God force you out with a crowbar. Stay. You know, if you're going to be here for six months, make it a year. If you're going to be here for a year, make it two years, ten years. Unless God tells you otherwise, Stay. Because Michiel at the back just gave me a massive thumbs up. <laughs> Michiel and Kerry have lived here for decades and decades, and I know of had opportunities to leave, but said, no. We're going to stay and serve this city. There are many other people in this church who've made the same decisions, and it's costly. It's difficult sometimes. Whereas 100 years ago, the main kind of missionary call to the church was to go 
go to new cultures, go to places that don't know Jesus and tell them. And that's still true. We still need to do that. But perhaps the hardest missionary calling today is to stay because this city is an expensive place to live. It can be a challenging place to live. It's easier to be a Christian in lots of other places. But stay. Stay. I think that's an important thing. Not because... We need people, but this city that, this is such a transient city, people are coming and going all the time. What the city needs is stability. Isn't that how relationships work? Stability. You make a, a commitment in marriage, you make a covenant commitment to love one another. And the foundation that, that lets that love flourish is stability is sticking around no matter what. And that's what this city needs. There's a whole army of people, not just us, but dozens, hundreds of other churches of communities of believers who say, we're going to stay. Where everyone else is moving, there's transients everywhere, we will be the stable presence that loves and serves this city. Because that's really one of the themes of the story of this book of Daniel. It's, it's a story of grace. It's a story of God not giving up on his people, even though they'd given up on him. That's why they've ended up in Babylon, because they rebelled against God. They wanted to do things their own way, and they sinned. They blew it time and time again, and God gave them so many warnings, and they kept kept making the same mistakes over and over again. So they're sent into exile, but yet God's grace remains throughout. That even though they gave up on him, he doesn't give up on them. We know that to be wonderfully true for our own lives, that all the time we give up on God, but he never gives up on us. And I think we should be a church in this city that has that same grace-filled approach that even if this city's given up on the church, that thinks we're useless and annoying and irritating or even bad, evil perhaps, that we won't give up on loving people in this city because that's what Jesus tells us to do. That's how he loves us. And maybe if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus, maybe none of this makes any sense to you. But perhaps maybe you're here because you felt that same nagging sense, but for different reasons, that same sense of not feeling quite at home. That something in this world doesn't quite fit. You have questions that you can't find answers for. That this world has never really felt truly at home for you. There's, there's something missing. Well, that's another theme of this book, is that the home we find the home that these exiles are searching for, they won't find ultimately in Babylon, but they find in Jesus Christ. He's our great home. We find rest in, peace in, and joy in. Because what enables Daniel and his friends to stay and live courageously, and what will help us, is not just to be like a Daniel, <laughs> He's a great example of how to be a faithful Christian 
in a world opposed to what we believe. But he was faithful because God's sovereign. God's in control. And they trusted in a sovereign God who's orchestrating all things. Because earthly kingdoms, if you look through history, earthly kingdoms and powers and kings rise and fall and disappear. Where is the Babylonian empire now? Where's the Roman empire now? Where's the British empire now? Not doing very well for itself. Those things that look as though they'll last forever, they don't. The one thing that remains steadfast and true is the kingdom of God. That's the one thing that lasts forever. That's how you read in the book of Revelation at the end of the story, it says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. This great empire has fallen. This archetype of human pursuit and purpose and desire set against God is fallen. It talks about in Hebrews that there is an unshakable kingdom, which is the kingdom of God, with Jesus as our great victor, who's won this great victory for us, so we can be bold and steadfast and confident. We can head into 2020 fearless, because we know God is with us and God is for us. Let me pray. Jesus, we want to thank you at the start of this year that you are with us. That although so often we can look at the world around us, we can feel confused, concerned. We know that there's an unshakable kingdom that we're part of. That Jesus, that you're alive, that you died for us, and you rose again. And you defeated death. You defeated all the enemies that were opposed to you. And we can now trust in you as our king, as our saviour and as our Lord. And know that your kingdom is not just a victorious kingdom, but it's a better kingdom. <laughs> it's just the best way to live. To know your grace, your truth, your light is pure joy and hope and delight for us. And we want to start this year by putting our hope, putting our trust, putting all our worship to you, knowing that that's just the best way to live. Thank you, Jesus, for all you've done for us. Amen.